Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 8, and it's from the ESV. O Lord, our, o Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. That's just what they were singing about, <laughs> this little light. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of God. Well, we're in week two of uh, about an 11-week series on who am I, and they look at biblical human identity. And they said we had three goals in this series. First, to understand God's purposes in creating us, that we would become more settled and joyful in life out of that. Secondly, to be drawn deeper into worship and wonder of who God is and what it means to, that what we mean to him as his image bearers. And then third, to be equipped to speak and uh, peace and wholeness into our world, which is in conflict and division on this subject. And so as we get into this today, let's, uh, let's turn our hearts to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you so much that your word speaks to every aspect of our lives. Uh, that <clears throat> in your word, we have your revelation. You have spoken uh, Lord, we would not have uh, really a clear understanding of who you are unless you chose to reveal yourself to us. And so even as we consider this morning the doctrine of revelation uh, as our, our second key point in our confession of faith, Lord, we need you to speak. We need you to uh, reveal who you are. And you've done that through your word. You've done that through your son, Jesus Christ. You continue to do that through the Holy Spirit who was sent to remind us, to guide us, to equip us, to convict the world of sin and guilt and righteousness, and to empower your people to serve you uh, today. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are the God who does not remain hidden, but you reveal who you are. Thank you for that. As we come to your word this morning, help us to hear it and receive it with the same spirit that wrote it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, back at the beginning of, uh, of the month, the beginning of the quarter, we went through, uh, we read through the book of Galatians, and so uh, I, all of the Galatians study guides disappeared that Sunday, so that's awesome. Uh, if you're getting together with a small group, a triad, or, or just family discipleship time, you can use that. I ordered 20 more, so they are on the counter ready for you to pick up. People are asking how much, ah, five, ten bucks, somewhere in there, I think, is what they cost. Uh, it's a great study. Um, 
we had a family discipleship night on Friday, and uh, one, of the, one of the ideas was, hey, because we're doing this quarterly thing, you could do this as a family, uh, plus also look into something like the fruit, uh, study on the fruit of the Spirit, because that comes out of Galatians. And a great book that I read just uh, over, the last, over the Christmas holidays, really, is called Analog Christian, Cultivating Contentment, Resilience, and Wisdom in a Digital Age. Um, and this is actually going through the fruit of the Spirit in relation to what social media is doing to undermine the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, and so very relevant uh, for us, and, uh, and just, you know, the internet technology and everything that's going on in our world right now. Um, you know, some of the love instead of self-centered despair, joy instead of comparison, peace instead of contempt, patience instead of impatience, kindness and goodness instead of hostility, gentleness instead of outrage, self-control instead of reckless indulgence, because that's really what, you know, the digital age is pushing us away from the fruit of the Spirit and into really the sinful nature. Uh, this is a pastor who actually works and serves in Silicon Valley. It is not an anti-technology, anti-social media diatribe. It is, however, a thoughtful engagement with it because he lives and works in that world uh, very specifically. So, uh, great resource, uh, christianbook.com, go get one. <clears throat> Who am I? Biblical human identity. Last week we looked at the foundation, the beginning, that we are made and created in God's image. And our main point that we came away with last week is that human identity begins in the mind and the heart and the will and the action of God to create us in his image, and therefore, every human being has value. We have value. Today, we're going to look at the same passages again, but we're going to, to, uh, to hone in on a few other words, and, and our main point today is that human identity is found in the vocation for which we were created, the vocation for which we were created. So what is a vocation? Sometimes we think of that just as a job or, or, or a career, um, and, and it does mean that. As an occupation, however, uh, the dictionary definition, an occupation that one feels drawn to or especially suited for, and before the 1600s, it basically meant that which God has called you towards. It was a calling from God. It was that before the 1600s, before the Industrial Revolution, it really had more of a a sense of this is God's calling on my life. And so what is your vocation? What is God's calling on your life? If our identity begins in the mind, the heart, and the will, and the action of God to create us in his image, then he has a purpose and a plan for us, and our identity is founded in that vocation for which he created us. So again, we need to start at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the foundation of human identity because it's a starting point that identifies not only the origin of our existence, but also the origin of our purpose. You know, last week I, I talked about, you know, if I, if I baked a cake and I set it on the table, you wouldn't know why it's there unless you asked me. And this is, again, why our revelation thing is important this morning. But, you know, science can take that cake and tear it apart and take it into the laboratory and identify the different chemicals it was made up of, uh, maybe the heat that it was cooked at and all this. It could tell me a lot about what the cake was, but they couldn't tell me why the cake was 
because that only resides in the baker's purpose. And similarly, God is kind of our cosmic baker. You're all a chocolate cake this morning. (laughs) Only he can define and tell you why you're here. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And today we're also going to look at Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So in both of these passages we have statements of purpose, why God created us. Humanity was created for a purpose. We were given a vocation right at the beginning. And this vocation is central to our identity as God's image bearers in creation. We were created to govern creation and serve it. To govern it and to serve creation. The language of Genesis 1, 26 to 28 is that of kingship. And the language of Genesis 2, 15 is that of priesthood. We'll unpack those very important words here. The challenge for us is to view both aspects in relation to one another and in, uh, uh, in balance with one another, not in conflict with one another, nor in imbalance. If we emphasize the ruling and domination of creation, we become abusive to the environment. And if we emphasize the call to serve and tend creation as a priesthood, we can venerate creation to the point of idolatry, but both are needed. Both aspects of kingship over creation and priesthood to creation are important. And and today we're just going to set a theological foundation for this. In a later message, we're going to come back to this and look specifically at issues of creation care. But that's down the road. This first number of weeks is, again, just laying the foundation. And again, if you skip church, check it, grab the Spotify or wherever you get your podcast, catch up, uh, because these are going to interlock. Each message is going to interlock. They're not really standalone messages. So, rulership and priesthood. The first thing we're going to look at is that God has designated humanity as rulers over creation. We are rulers over creation. To subdue and have dominion. What does this mean? The apex of the Genesis 1 creation account is the creation of humanity. In no other creational act does God deliberate within himself or with the heavenly court, nor are there requirements for other creatures so detailed. In addition, God repeats himself. Verse 26 and 28 are like a repetition. So God's kind of creating an earworm here to the listener, a highlight to the reader. Pay attention. This is important. And then Psalm 8 that we read repeats a lot of this too. 
Two key words form the heart of this vocational command in Genesis chapter 1, to have dominion and to subdue. And both words are very rare in the Hebrew Bible. And as such, they're significant and specific in what the author is communicating. And they're also a bit surprising. Subdue is the Hebrew word kabash, and it occurs only 15 times in the Old Testament. Dominion, radah, occurs only 23 times. In verse 28, there, there, is, there is a string of commands, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. The first three really culminate in this fourth command, to subdue the earth. This is what follows after uh, those other ones, be fruitful, multiply, and fill, happens. Now, it isn't necessarily as a natural consequence, but as, as an as a expected outcome of humanity filling the earth. Because subduing requires filling. Filling requires multiplying, and multiplying requires being fruitful. And yes, this is just about having kids. <laughs> Be fruitful and multiply. I, I was going to tag Ellen Gwen's uh, Christmas picture post because it's like there was two, and then there was how many in that picture? Good job. <laughs> that was a lot of people in that picture. You know, how, how many of you have you taken like, oh, you, you look back in some of those old family photos and it's like, wow, that started with two people and now there's 40, right? You look back, and uh, my mom's family, nine brothers and sisters, and then, you know, you've got their kids and, and now like my cousins are all over the place and how many of us are there? I can't even hazard a guess. Over 100 now? Yeah. So grandma and grandpa, <laughs> that DNA spreads pretty quick. The idea of subduing, though, is that of bringing under control or bondage by use of force. That's shocking. That's, that's like almost radically countercultural right now, right? To talk about our role in creation to be, to bring under control by use of force. Therefore, the implication is that creation will not simply play along with us. It's going to resist. Interesting, this is before the fall. Creation is resistant even in a pre-fall state. Resistant to us. It will require effort and deliberate action from the image bearers to continue bringing creation into order. Similarly, the word dominion is just as jarring for us to hear. The verb is used in relation to other living beings, other creations that, that God spoke into existence and declares them good. This verb is sometimes used to describe the dominion that Israel has over other nations, that they would both defeat them and then rule over them. John Goldingay in his Old Testament theology uh, volume one book says, dominion is not a term for ruling as a king over a people. It refers to mastery imposed by a foe. Mastery exercised by one people over another against their will. It can be exercised in a way that combines power and love, but it does involve compulsion by force. 
Again, these are kind of jarring words in our very eco-friendly, you know, world. Maybe a little radical. Neither of these terms strikes us as immediately benevolent or beneficial for creation. We probably bristle at this to some degree. In fact, some, some have argued, I think there was an article in 1969 by somebody who basically said, the reason we have an ecological crisis is because of these passages in Scripture and because the church has just said, just rape and pillage the earth. That was a little short-sighted. Maybe true of Western imperialism, but not necessarily a biblical, good understanding of this biblical passage. So, yeah, this article, I think it was in 69, came out uh, that argued that the root cause of much of our ecological exploitation and, and the degradation of, of creation is founded in things like the doctrine of discovery from a Western European exploitive, extractive uh, perspective that gave, uh, you know, conquered peoples, uh, conquering, that gave conquering peoples a right to land and to rule over indigenous peoples whom they viewed as less than human. However, if governments and empires and missionary movements abused the text, it is not what God intended. This is not what the context of Genesis 1 directs us to in our understanding of our vocation as human beings. Christopher Wright, in his book, The Mission of God, says, the idea that these words could ever imply violent abuse and exploitation of the implied and the implied accusation that Christianity is therefore intrinsically an eco-hostile religion is relatively recent. By far the dominant interpretation of these words in both Jewish and Christian tradition down through the centuries has been that they entail benevolent care for the rest of creation as entrusted into human custodianship. So it's only a really recent kind of pushback or, or trying to find fault, really, in Christianity that this has become an issue. For the majority of Christian and Jewish interpretation, these words are seen as good and beneficial. Now, how do we get that? Because these words are very harsh, but if you look at the whole context of Genesis 1 and what God himself is doing, then we begin to understand what God is calling us to do as his image-bearing creations. We must remember that God himself is exercising dominion to subdue creation throughout Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, there is the Spirit of God hovering over the watery, dark depths of the tohu vavohu, which is a Hebrew way of saying chaos and disorder and formlessness and, and, and void. There is something there in Genesis verse 1 to 3 before God says, let there be light. There is a watery, dark, chaotic something. And God speaks into that to bring order, and he does it by the force of his word. He is exercising dominion to subdue that which is chaotic and dark and empty. He is forming order out of chaos. He is calling forth environments, days one to three, and then days four, five, and six, he is filling them with life and beauty. And as image-bearing beings of the creator, humanity is called to continue this project of forming and filling the earth. And so therefore, we reflect the character of God 
in how we are to utilize creation as we work to refine God's creation. And that Western imperialism has, over the last two centuries, been largely extractive and abusive to creation, that is more a reflection of the rise of a view that the, of the world that is driven by science and exploitation apart from a creational mandate. While wearing the guise of Christianity, it has been driven by utilitarian motives. Creation was not so much to be tended as to be exploited for king and for country and for power. This is not what Genesis 1 is leading us towards, if we really understand it. The other interesting thing to note is that in Genesis 1, this is a charge given to humanity before the fall. Perhaps our view of God, of what God meant when he created everything and saw that it was very good, needs a bit of modification. Did that mean that everything was completely finished and orderly that nothing else needed to be done, that there was nothing over which humanity needed to exercise dominion and work to subdue it, then this command would be useless and meaningless. Humanity wasn't placed in the garden to just take it easy in a work-free environment and an eternal vacation. Like We kind of get this picture, and sometimes it's in our like Sunday school coloring pages, that the garden was this completely relaxed life, like going to the Bahamas and sitting on the beach and sipping margaritas all day. Then it doesn't make sense that God would say, I'm going to create man in his image so he can have dominion, so he can subdue, so that he can put an order. These, these commands were important before the fall to work it and to take care of it. That creation was good does not necessarily mean it was complete. Well, God completes his work in six days, humanity's work is just beginning. And in Genesis 2.5, there are two interesting factors as we read the second creation account that, that starts off, um, why there is no vegetation is because God hasn't sent rain and there's no man yet to plow the ground. There needed to be somebody to plow this before we plant the garden. So there needed to be work so that the Lord God had not yet set rain and the Adam, the Adam, it's, it's a title, it's not a name, was sent to work the Adama, it's the word for ground, the word for Adam, or homophones, they sound the same and they actually kind of, they're root words together. So the dirtling wasn't created yet to work the dirt. There's another way you could translate this. Creation is a work in progress, even in Genesis in 1 to 2. There remains work to be done. For why else would the garden need a gardener? Carmen Joy Eimes in her book, Being God's Image, suggests that to be human is to participate in creation care on God's behalf. Our task is to care for the earth the way the Creator would. We continue God's creative work. This important task demands that we focus on something other than ourselves. Now, humanity wasn't given the garden so that they could, it wasn't just for them, it was for them to work in. It was for them to serve in. There was a task to be done. So God designates as rulers over creation to reflect his character and how we nurture and govern that which he has made, and how we continue to refine and utilize creation in our work and in our industry, we must then ask the question, what 
would Creator do? We're to reflect God's image in how we, how we utilize creation. And if we're to rule, subdue it, take care of it, and to guard and to keep it, then we must be asking ourselves a question, what would the Creator do? And then follow that. So God delegates rulers over creation. Secondly, God delegates priests in creation, Genesis 2.15. In this verse, there are two tasks humanity is called to perform in relation to the garden, to work it and to keep it, or to serve and to protect, another way you could translate this. This is the language of priesthood, and we'll look at that in a moment. First, we need to notice that there is a special act of God happening here. Uh, Genesis 2.15 picks up where 2.8 left off. There's kind of a little bit of a divergence, and then it comes back. But what happens here is that God, uh, in Genesis 2.15, it says, God put the human in the garden, or, or placed this human in the garden. In verse 8, the, the, the author uses a very normal, very repetitive word throughout Scripture to, to put to place in a location. But then when we get to 2.15, there is a new verb here, and it is the verb nuach or noach, the word from what we get the, word, the name Noah. And it is he rested the human in the garden. The verb is related to rest and stability or, or a coming, a, a ceasing of movement. The Adam, again here, not a proper noun yet, is placed in the center of the garden where he will not only find a place to live but a place to thrive. The theological word book of the Old Testament says that when we look at this, this uh, verb, uh, to rest, the basic meaning is the absence of spatial activity and the presence of security. As in Genesis 8.4, the ark came to rest on the mountain. It stopped moving. Our root signifies not only the absence of movement, but being settled in a particular place, whether abstract or concrete, with overtones of finality or when speaking abstractly of victory or salvation. This understanding makes the expulsion from the garden and especially Cain's response that he will now be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth all that more tragic. Because God set us in a place to give us rest and security and provision and a place we can thrive the garden then is a place of sanctuary and security, a place where life isn't aimless. And we're not drifting, but it is filled with purpose and direction and rest. The garden's not a place of struggling to survive, but a place of living to thrive. But it is not a place of inactivity. God's purpose is summarized in two key words, to work and to keep. To work it and to keep it. And these are very common words in the Hebrew Bible. To, to work, to serve, also translated at times to worship. To work, to serve, to worship, and to keep and to guard and to preserve. When one is called to serve or work, in, it is in relation to other people, actually, throughout Scripture. These two words are all relational words. In other words, 
This refers to the activity of work, but the, the working has a relational aspect. One who serves does so under a higher authority for the benefit of other people. In Exodus chapter 3, Israel was the servant to Pharaoh, but they would be redeemed from that slavery in order to serve God at the mountain. Same word. In some translations, you will be freed from your slavery so that you can worship God on this mountain, but in the original language, it's the same word. You're going to be set free from slavery to Pharaoh so that you can be a slave to God. It's set free from doing service for Pharaoh to doing service for God. And this was the sign by which God would say, you have been redeemed, Israel, and you will serve the Lord at Mount Sinai or you will worship him there. So servanthood is not freedom. They don't get freed from slavery, but they get transferred of lordship to God. And, and I think Paul picks this up in Romans 6 when he says you are set free from sin so that you can be serving God. And again, the word there is you were a slave to sin, now you're a servant to God. We, we, we like to change the word because we don't like the word slavery and sin feels like slavery, but to God we're like, oh, we can just serve him. And that kind of, we feel more free in that. It's the same word, though. Amen. It's the same word. Humanity's identity is rooted in the fact we're called to serve creation and be lords over creation. But the lordship is that, that reflects the character of God revealed perfectly in Jesus Christ. This defines our identity as, the, as subject to the Lord and serving his purposes for which he has created us. In addition to serve and to work is to bring out the value of that which one serves or works. To, to serve or, or to work is to bring value to those that you serve or work for. In relation to God, it means that we worship him for who he is. And this is the most common use of the word abad, to, to serve is to worship. So, so it's not that we work the ground for our profit and benefit, but for the good and the valuing of the ground itself. And now, I didn't write this down because I, I was still mulling it over this week, and I, I only found a few references uh, to scholars engaging with this issue. But the, the word Garden of Eden is a masculine noun, but the, the suffix on the Hebrew word for work and to serve, the it, is feminine. And so it does it refer to the garden, to work and serve the garden? Because those things are supposed to agree linguistically, and here they don't. And one author said that this is probably, we should probably better translate it the, that God put humanity in the Garden of Eden to worship and obey him. To worship and obey the creator. And in that context, and, and, and you know, you look at the whole story, and, and, and that does make sense. It's a bit of a, you know, other tra translations down the line, the Septuagint, the Vulgate, and all these ancient translations changed it so that the verb and subject and all this stuff agreed as, as to masculine and referred it back to the garden. So there is an ancient, long tradition of understanding the referent differently. But it's interesting that that is there. So that's just a rabbit trail. I don't want to go down that too much further. Bottom line is that our work is to reflect God's character in how we use and serve the creation he has entrusted to us. To guard, to keep, to observe. It means to exercise great care 
over and give careful attention to it or to be responsible for it. This is humanity's charge in the garden. They are there not for themselves. They are there and they are placed for God's purposes, which is the flourishing of creation itself. And in that place, we find security and provision. Now, these two words, to work and to keep, don't occur that often together except in one key chapter, and that is Numbers chapter 3. One other place where these two words occur together and instructing people to a specific task, and that's Numbers chapter 3, and it's there that, we def- that, that God defines the role of the priesthood with these two words in particular, to guard and to keep the tabernacle. The garden to keep the tabernacle. So uh, Bruce Waltke in his Genesis commentary says, elsewhere in the Pentateuch, the expression describes activity on, this activity only of priests. The latter term, to keep, entails guarding the garden against Satan's encroachment. As priests and guardians of the garden, Adam and Eve should have driven out the serpent. Instead, it drives them out to guard and to keep this temple, tabernacle, garden. And again, won't get into it, but a lot of ancient Near Eastern uh, creation accounts have this garden, temple imagery in which the image is an idol placed in the temple at the culmination of of the creation account. Here the image is, of course, humanity, living, breathing. We talked about that last week. But here we get this, uh, in Numbers 3, the repeated task of the priesthood is to serve the people of Israel by guarding the sanctity of the tabernacle. Numbers 3.13 says this, guarding the people of Israel and any outsider or unauthorized person from drawing near and being put to death. Guarding the people of Israel from, or any outsider, any and could be any unauthorized person, from getting, coming into the tabernacle and inadvertently defiling the, the holiness and the sanctity of the tabernacle. And so that's why the, the priesthood is put in place, to guard and to keep the, the, the sanctuary. The guarding of the sanctity of the tabernacle was a matter of life and death. In the following verses of Genesis 2, we find that obedience to the commands of God To guard and to keep, the garden is a matter of life and death. We'll see that in a few weeks when we get into chapter 3. The garden must be protected as sacred space. The priesthood was to protect the purity of the tabernacle sanctuary, protecting other people for their good so that they could come and worship appropriately. The protection they are to provide is not to restrict access to the tabernacle, but for the people's good and their thriving. So God in creation created this sacred space in the Garden of Eden, placed the man in the garden to serve as the priest, to care for what God created as good and what God established as a place of rest and sanctuary and fellowship and worship. So God delegated rulership of creation to humanity, and he delegated priests to protect and to help creation flourish as he intended. 
So our main point today is that human identity is found in the vocation for which we were created as rulers and priests over and for creation. God created us to continue his creational work and reflecting his character and how we serve and use creation, how we respect creation and how we enjoy creation. Our task from the very beginning has been to exercise our identity as God's image bearers in creation for the flourishing and the development of creation. In short, we matter to the world. This is a human vocation and identity before sin entered the world and began to degrade our image-bearing clarity and to distort our image-bearing capacity to do so. But the gospel restores us to this identity and to this vocation. And so the gospel needs to start reworking our minds in relation to how we relate to the world around us. In our vocation, the purpose and particular work that God has designed us to fulfill in relation to the world around us, the world we inhabit, is both to rule and to protect, to act as rulers and priests, and to understand our identity is grounded in the purposes of God, to understand that his purposes for us will always be for our good and the flourishing of creation. We are to exercise dominion and subdue creation, not for personal gain or profit, but for the flourishing and the fruitfulness of creation. While this takes work and effort, it is inherent to our identity. To live otherwise or to treat creation in a way that violates the flourishing and fruitfulness of the earth is to violate God's given vocation for us. We'll develop this in a later message on creation care. In the life of Jesus Christ, we see this beginning to take root. We see this demonstrated as the perfect image of God works to heal what is broken, to have dominion over the calming the raging storms and walking on the water. We see these acts of dominion of creator over creation. And if our identity is to reflect, however dimly, our creator, how might we live and pray in and for this world of chaos and darkness and confusion when the creator for whom we are to reflect is one of order and light and stability. And this brings us to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, and maybe we haven't thought of it in relation to creation care. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, royal priesthood, ruler and priest, people for God's own possession, that you may declare the glory of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The call to be kings and priests, rulers and priests, in and for creation still stands. Our identity as image-bearing people begins to take on a more concrete reality when we embrace our task to exercise dominion in ways similar to God. Our identity as image-bearing people begins to become more a life of worship when we embrace our task to exercise priesthood in creation, guarding the sanctity of God's work in which we're placed to flourish and grow in relationship to our Creator. But we cannot achieve this goal and vocation, as Adam and Eve proved in chapter 3. The presence of sin, the failure of Adam and Eve to work and protect the garden, to allow the serpent to subvert their rule and dominion over every creeping thing, 
Note that in Genesis, it's just a snake that talks. And it's deliberately said, a creation of God means that our ability is to live out this vocation. Our ability to live out the vocation as kings and priests is actually broken under sin. In a few weeks, we're going to look more closely at Genesis 3 and the reality that not only is our relationship with God broken by sin, but our relationship with one another and the world God created for us to rule and guard and keep. Again, the gospel restores us in that identity as new creations in Christ. So our first main point last week, human identity begins in the mind, the heart, the will, and the action of God to create us in his image. And that gives us value. Main point number two today, human identity is found in the vocation for which we were created to rule and care for the earth under the authority of God. We have value and we have a vocation. Every living, breathing person on the planet today. But life today under the ravages of sin is difficult and the struggle is real, the pain is deep. And with every funeral and sickness and natural disaster we face, we are reminded that we live in a broken world. Apart from the promise of redemption and renewal of the gospel, we can fall quickly into despair and lose hope that anything will ever change. But Paul reminds us that though life in this world is difficult, we have a hope. God does more than we can ask or imagine and will complete the work of restoration that Jesus Christ has worked for us. The resurrection being the signpost of the new life to come. Listen to the words from Paul in Romans chapter 8. I'd invite you just to hear this, maybe close your eyes and just hear this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together as in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Think about this. You have value because God created you. And you have a vocation because God has given it to you. The deepest pain you're carrying in your life right now can never separate you from God's love or his purpose. He will one day heal that pain. And the struggle you're having in life right now that is sapping your strength and causing you to lose hope will one day be removed. It may not be soon. It may not be the sight of heaven and the resurrection. The remainder of your life on earth will likely continue to be a mixture of pain and struggle and rest and victory. But there is so much more to come. And these things do not fall outside the care and the compassion and the power of God who spoke order into creation. And there's really no answer I can give you as to why he doesn't remove the pain and the struggle now or why the sickness persists. All I can do is repeat Paul's conclusion in Romans 8. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.